the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Oh, welcome back. I have been looking forward to this interview for several days now. Our good friend, Dr. Mark Bauerline, Professor Bauerline, has a brand new book out, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up from Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. Professor, how are you, sir? Congratulations on your new book. Thank you, Seth. And, and, you know, call me, you can either call me Herr Professor Dr. Bauerline or you can call me Mark. You, you see, I was listening to you on, on this other fly, on a, on, a, on this other fly by night show. I think it was the Adam Carolla show. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> that was a great interview, by the way. I, I tease uh, Adam, of course. It was, it's a great show. But that was a great interview. And I thought, I thought you're back and I thought he had some great questions and insights along with you. But let me start where he started. What is the dumbest generation, Mark? I know from your previous books, but for the audience's sake. Right. Well, we're just talking about the millennials. Uh, born in the early 80s up until uh, up until about 2000. And I single them out because they were really the first generation who grew up with these tools. They had no living memory, really, of a time before computers, before even uh, for, for the younger ones, even before the iPhone and texting and, and Facebook. So this was the digital age, the air that they breathed, right? They were just the water that they swam in. And when Web 2.0 took off in the first decade of the third millennium, the young kids were taken to be the early adopters, the digital natives. They were going to run circles around all us uh, slow grown-ups and boomers who had to hand this uh, handheld device, as it was then called, over to the, my, my 12-year-old. Like, can you show me how to use this doggone thing? Mm-hmm. And they were talked about as the smartest generation in history. There was so much cheerleading and hype that went along with the kids because they were so out in front on the use of social media. Facebook came along in 05, 06. MySpace had been around for a couple of years before that. YouTube video, uh, taking pictures. Uh, the, the iPhones were coming. Twitter started at 07, 08, uh, and they were texting 3,000 per month by, by 2010. And I looked at this uh, as watching, you know, schools wiring classrooms every chance they could get libraries being turned from book repositories into information centers, that this is awful. It's not healthy for the kids to be uh, walking around taking pictures of themselves all the time. I mean, adolescents are narcissistic, egotistical enough without giving them a tool to reinforce it 24-7. And so I wrote this first book, The Dumbest Generation, in 2008, saying this is a very bad formation. They're going into their rooms, shutting the door, and they're hitting all the screens, and they're on with one another all the time. That was the key, the peer pressure the peer absorption for them was over the top. They were able to form an adolescent bubble around themselves that kept adult stuff from coming into their lives. 
They're not reading as many books as they used to. They're not watching intelligent television, listening to smart radio. They aren't going to historic sites and museums, going to bookstores. Uh, and, you know, I didn't really want to that myself, but I had that pressure on me to do so when I was 15. They were able to shut it out, uh, Seth, and I predicted that when these kids grow up, when they hit age 30, that they're not going to have the the knowledge of history and the religion and politics, the understanding that goes with being a free citizen in an open society. They're going to be 30 years old without the equipment to understand the ordinary disappointments that happen to you when you're a grown-up. I mean, we all we all get rejected in, in love. You know, we all don't get the job that we really want to have. We end up with coworkers. We don't. We don't. Some some of them we don't like. Well, that's life. Well, they were they were in their rooms at age fifteen, and that wasn't life back then. If it, I mean, Seth, we, we talk about cancel culture. Yep. They and 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 they lead the way on cancel culture. They grew up with it. You have this great theory approval. about this. I love your theory on this that they grew up with it as well, as kind of normal in their social media, right? Yeah, I mean, Seth, in their in their bedrooms, in the teenage years, if they're if if on Facebook someone says something that our our youth doesn't like, you can unfriend that person with a few buttons. They've been canceling since age twelve. Yeah, canceling and block blocking and unfriending. People. You bet, making non-persons. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, it, it it was a world in which they never had to face a disruptive, disturbing, disagreeable opinion. They, they didn't have to uh, engage in any critical way with an intellectual adversary. Just, just remove that person. And, boy, how nice that would be to live in a world of constant affirmation. I mean, this, this, this is kind of a dream. Mark, almost almost everything else wrong with our society, I think, emanates from what you just said. We're talking to Mark Bauerlein, the dumbest generation grows up. So if I can spend a little time with you on this point for a second. Yeah. You have seen it because you've been a professor of uh, English and literature for decades. So you have seen the changing composition of those who come into undergraduate studies. Did everyone older than 40 – were they better equipped to go to college because they didn't have that experience? The experience they had was maybe some trips with family or friends, uh, maybe reading a book seriously or at least being told they had to read a book seriously. And maybe that book was Shakespeare. Maybe it was the Iliad. Maybe it was, gosh, I don't know, something even far more contemporary like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Did, did students over the age of 40 come to college better equipped than they do now? In the verbal areas, reading and writing, most definitely. I mean, no, no there, there's no comparison. Uh, they were better writers and better readers. You had, you know, in the 90s, still in the, well, throughout, up until the, the aughts, you always had a, a, a cadre of bookworm kind of kids, the bookish ones. They weren't always interested in the grades. They weren't on the big achievement track. They might be a little offbeat, 
but they were readers. Yeah, they, they walked around with Kurt Vonnegut books. books. I remember these people. I yeah. was one of them. I know who you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, the cool ones yep. would, would read, you know, existentialism yep. kind of thing. Oh, yeah, there was some Sartre. And there was some Salinger. Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah. It, exactly. And there were there were a good a good number of those in my classes mm-hmm. that I saw when I taught at UCLA and, and at Emory University in the 80s and 90s. But by 2010, that, that figure's gone. You're right. Yeah, that, that's a rarity. Right. For, for that kid. And it's because, you know, you, you've got all the screens drawing their attention away from books. And remember, what I talk about in this book is Silicon Valley hired consultants who were experts in addiction, attention, holding oh, people's yeah. eyes on oh, something. Sure. Oh, sure. They wanted kids to get on that game, to get on that social media and stay there for hours and hours. And they designed them that way. And you remember in the 90s, we had this whole thing about the digital divide. Right. Right. The the digital divide back then was the Internet is this wondrous instrument of learning. All the knowledge of the universe is out there online now. But the problem is that Lower-income kids are not going to have access. The tools are kind of expensive. The having an internet, you know, a hookup, it costs money. And the rich kids are going to get it. The poor kids won't. And this is going to aggravate the achievement gap. It's going to get worse. We're going to have more inequality uh, with every year. Well, what we have now is another digital gap. Upper-income parents put their kids on screens a lot less now than lower-income parents. Okay. We had an explosion of screen time for poor kids in the last 10 or 15 years, and at the same time, those kids' reading and writing scores have gone significantly down. Yeah, let me let me pause on that. we got to take a commercial break anyway, so let me, let me pause uh, as we head to break and by planting this question because – Whenever we're talking about problems of our youth, the dumbest generation grows up is the title of your new book. Um, it's really a problem of adults. I, I've always thought it was it was the adults. You know, we don't have youth problems. We have adult problems. And if I can pick up on that and what the adults were telling children about social media, I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about, you know, all the complaints we ha- worried about with social media tension deficit, I don't know, any number of psychological problems, too much of an addiction to it could bring on. We had said that about previous mediums. We had said it about television. We had said it about commercial television, the vast wasteland, of course, all that discussion. But, you know, Shakespeare comes screaming back, doesn't he? You can't say this is the worst if this if you can say this is the worst. So we'll pick up on all of that with Mark Bauerlein. The Dumbest Generation Grows Up is his book. We'll be right back. The author we are talking with is our old friend Mark Bauerlein, B-A-U-E-R-L-E-I-N. That's how he spells his name. His brand new book just out, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. Mark, um, there was a profile in Rolling Stone magazine a few years back uh, over um, 
over the uh, the marathon, uh, the Boston Marathon bombers. You may you may remember the kid uh, Tsarnaev was on the uh, on the on the cover with a ra- rather uh, ridiculous uh, picture of him. But they were interviewing was, these kids. It was, it was downright. It was downright romantic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Your your memory of that is right. It was almost terrorism por- porn or something. But but. Um, they interviewed one of the teachers in in his community about students like the Tsarnaevs who can grow up believing ridiculous things about 9-11. And I don't think this is specific to 9-11. This quote, this great uh, teacher in Boston said, I, I'd like to run it by you. He said the problem with the, this demographic, and he's talking about 17 and 18-year-olds in Boston. The problem with this demographic is that they do not know the basic narratives of their histories or really any narratives anymore. They're blazed on pot and searching the Internet for any factoids that they believe fit their highly dehistoricized and decontextualized ideologies. And the adult world totally misunderstands them and dismisses them at our collective peril. Kind of the problem with them growing up with only the Internet, isn't it? Uh, That's, I think, a pretty good analysis of what's taking place here. It's it's, uh, it's wide open. It gives you anything. It feeds you anything you really want. Right. And what do 16-year-olds want? Well, actually, Seth, 16-year-old boys, let's not answer that question. Okay. 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 We don't want to know <laughs> yeah. what's going on inside. Right. Head. I don't. I, right. We we don't want what they what they want. We want them to have what we want. That's really what but, it comes down to. Uh, you know, this new book opens with the line, "What have we done right. to them?" Right. And the issue is, what kind of world have we offered to them? You're right. It's it's the, it's the chaos of the internet where, you know, you, you don't have any standards or norms. It's all over the place. It's not a coherent structure, framework, narrative that, that, that the narrative that the internet offers. They're able to assemble one out of all kinds of uh, nonsense that they can draw from there. But this is, you, you mentioned the, the old, the old silliness. Yeah, 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 yeah. The kinds of things that Fred Rogers that, was that worried was out about. There. I mean, yeah. Gilligan's Island. Right. Gilligan's Island looks right. silly. Right. You know, Mr. Ed. And, you know, how is this different? Well, uh, and, and I'll, I'll get to that, that the point about the, the world we've offered today. But to compare the old TV to all the screens they have now, I mean, I'm, I'm 62, so... When I was 15, there were five TV channels. Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm-hmm. There was only one screen in the house. Mm-hmm. And I once went through the TV guide in Atlanta in 1970 okay. just to see what kind of programming was out there. I found on all all week long, there was only one TV show about, it, about a high school kid, hmm. about a teenager, hmm. the Patty Duke show. Mm. That was it. Now, there were a lot of shows kids liked. There were cartoons, you know, Speed Racer. There were uh, shows like, like Get Smart and Gilligan's Island that, that, you know, teenagers would watch. But it wasn't a teenage world. It wasn't about them. That, that came along later. Uh, but again, you only had five stations. One of them was PBS. Uh, and then you had the networks. So 
you couldn't you couldn't surround yourself. But a lot you of them were too, Mark. Yourself. Mark, weren't a lot of them too in a way about good and evil, right and wrong? First responders had a lot of shows. Westerns, a lot of the shows were westerns. God knows, cowboys. Um, who were who, and, and they were deeply moral. Yeah, 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 shows, yeah, like yeah. The rifleman, yeah, yeah. The rifleman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the rifleman is was an upright guy. He's a he's a father raising a son. You had the Andy Griffith show, yep, yep. which always had some moral issues uh, at the core. Yeah, but the drunkard was made uh, fun of. He wasn't made a hero. That's the difference, right? <laughs> Otis. And they treated him more or less gently. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you laughed at him. He was uh, the old, yeah. Old yeah. <laughs> but um, with the the internet, a lot of the trends were already in place. Like cable TV, you know, jumped the the offerings up to about thirty or forty channels in the eighties, and a lot of teen shows were were added around there, like Saved by the Bell. But the internet just was exponential. It 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 made a whole separate youth universe if they wanted to find it. And the idea that you could be in touch with your peers all the time, wherever you were, I couldn't do that. There was there was a landline, as it's now called, in the house. That was the only phone. It was in the kitchen. It was on the wall. And I didn't, you know, if I wanted to try to, you know, bumble my way into a conversation with some girl. It would be embarrassing. People are around my older sister, my, my mother. I, you know, I didn't want to do that. So really, I, social life was over when I went home for the most part. And now it never, it never stops. And here, here's the thing that gets us up to the, the present moment, uh, Seth. What, what you talk about with the, these kids, that this world, this chaotic, anarchical world that they live in, that comes at them in a rush, you know, when, when the, when the adults, this really goes back to the mid 20th century, when the adults started withdrawing their authority from the young, when we started talking about letting the youth movement go its own way, you know, they, the, the 1960s, their own youth culture was sort of more and more independent. And, the teachers started getting a little more, the mentors in general, got a little less confident in their own wisdom, in their own authority. What happened there was when they withdrew their authority and let the young sort of discover things on their own. You know, the teacher who says, you know, I, I just sort of step aside and let the kids own their own learning. Well, what, what you're really doing there is withdrawing the authority of the elders and turning them over to the authority of their peers. That's right. And That's the right. authority of peers can come up with some inventive cruelties that the adults can't even imagine. Let me pause you on that so, point. Let me pause you on that point. That's so important. I want to pick up it on, pick up on it on the other side. And, yeah, it was one thing when it started happening at the elementary, secondary level. My favorite chapter of yours in your new book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, is the one titled Multiculturalism or Malcolm X because you talk about, as so many do, starting with Stanford University. They said as much. They, I mean they pretty much said uh, we're dispensing with truths. Who's to say what's true? Learning and what you learn is up to you. 
and where that has led us, Mark, I think it's part and parcel. Can we pick up on that when we when we come right back? Oh yeah. We will be back with Mark Bauerline in just a few moments. I'm Seth Liebson. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero is our number. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Mark Bauerlein is our guest. His book, The Dumbest Generation, grows up. Mark, uh, talk to me a little bit about, you know, turning the keys of the kingdom of wisdom over to the children, to the youth. Um, it didn't just happen with elementary and secondary, as you point out in one of, one of my favorite chapters, uh, Multiculturalism or Malcolm X. Stanford University said as much. They They dispensed with truth and a canon and said the most important thing is what you want to study and your truth, right? Well, this is the part of the whole withdrawal of authority. We're not going to make the kids immerse themselves in Western civilization right. anymore. Right. We're not going to give them traditions that make them feel like they live in the shadow of forms of greatness of genius, brilliance, beauty, sublimity. We're not going to make them go to church very much and have them submit themselves before a deity, whatever that happens to be. We're not going to give them a country of which they should feel proud and feel gratitude for. No, no, those things would have stood for an authority beyond themselves, beyond their little peer group. An external truth, if you will, a North Star, something like that? And anything, anything to give them a belief, a commitment beyond themselves. It preceded you, and it's going to exist beyond you as well. Well, what, what did our secular, liberal institutions do. They undermined all those things. I mean, that even undermined fatherhood. Yeah. You know, feminism undermined fatherhood. You know, and look 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 at the damage that has caused. Go to prison and ask those those men inside, how many of them grew up with no fathers in the home? You look at the uh, millennials, only one third of them call themselves patriots. Only one third. Uh, and, not and a smaller families. number, by the way, think marriage and fatherhood is 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 a goal to be to to be desired to be consummated. Yeah, it's just it's just not not much on their radar, right? And so this this is something that leaves them in a world of consumption. Mm-hmm. You know, buy things, build your friend network, get online. That's where your self realization will happen. What is success? Success, they think when they're 17, is building your Facebook friend right. network into the hundreds. Right. Wow. Right. Your Twitter following. You, you, you broke 2,000. Wow. You are special. This, these are the wrong bases for doing so, because one thing it does is it does mix them amidst one another way too much. Way right. too much. And if some, by the way... Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead. Out of. 
I was out of the social network. Yeah, I was just going to say that's right. That person with three thousand. That's right. I was just going to say that person with three thousand followers that 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 they may or may not know. Well, if you have two thousand followers, the person with three thousand followers must be saying something important and true and worthwhile, right? I mean that that that's really what we've consigned truth to: uh, fake popularity, faux popularity. It, it it really does become a whole new form of status right. competition. Right, right. That these kids are in, and it pushes them into stupid behaviors as well. I, I, I mean, come on, this is not that important. I mean, you've got this top ten or fifteen percent of hyper achievement oriented kids. They're doing all the AP classes. They want to get into the Ivy League and the flagship state universities. So they work extraordinarily hard. But you get outside that little group and things drop very quickly. And, and again, as I said, now farther you go down that achievement ladder, the more time the youth spend online. Now, one thing I meant about you know the loss of, of God, of country, of traditions, of great books, great works of art, again, feeling like you stand in the shadow of great events like Gettysburg. Uh, you know, like like uh, like D-Day, is that, you know, what equipment do they have when they're 30 years old now? Right. You know, that Facebook thing, the thrill is gone. It's really. But they do have some. But they do have something that is extremely troublesome that's turned on us. Can I pick up on this when we come back from this break? We said to kids, we're not going to tell you the truth. It's up to you. Follow your own path. There's no right answer. And it ended up being that it wasn't even true for them because somehow you and I were seen as wrong and worthy of censorship in this world of esteeming your own, following your own path. Can we talk about that when we come back? Oh, yeah. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Mark Bauerlein. In other words, this relativism... Went only so far, didn't it, Mark? Well, what we realize is that this this outlook of you know you you create your own truth, you you build your own world. It's offered as a, a liberation, right? Mm-hmm. This is individual freedom for everyone. You know, it, it doesn't matter who you love. Just just do your own thing. What we realize now is when you make so much of the truths of life into a relativistic or subjective thing, power is going to enter in another direction and start exerting control. Because you can't have the chaos of everyone running around with their own truth demanding this and that, because truths aren't as uh, passive as, as, as that. They make demands on people. And so what do we see now? Everyone feels in our society today less freedom than before. Cancel culture has got everyone worried, including my liberal colleagues yep. on college campuses. Yep. That they are afraid of their students. I mean, if I had said to my to my professor colleagues, liberals, Democrats, ten years ago, you know, you're going to have to start being careful of pronouns. They would say, "Oh, what kind of you know, chicken little." Uh, right-wing alarmism is this now. If I said, you know, you've been teaching Huckleberry Finn for decades, you're not going to be able to teach that anymore. It's got the N-word in it. 
It's, oh, come on. Two years ago, two years ago, Dennis Prager was on on with Bill on Bill Maher's show and said the less lies dominate this culture. And Maher said, give me an example. And Prager said, "Okay, men menstruate. And everyone laughed and thought Dennis was being ridiculous. Two weeks ago, Bill Maher did a segment on the craziness of the left saying that men can give birth. This is what you're talking about. It, it, it keeps going farther and farther. I'll tell you what, what amazes me most of all is not the left pushing this. Because if you've been on a college campus, things like critical race theory, I've been hearing this for 30 yeah, years. Yeah, me too. Right, not nothing, new. Right. N- nothing new. Uh, but, but, you know, the liberals who are sitting there watching all of their liberal principles of free speech, right, individual conscience, this was supposed to be liberalism, and boy, are you guys caving. Mm-hmm. I mean, the spinelessness mm-hmm. of liberals right now in the face of these leftist identity politicians, the way they have gone along with these woke campaigns to nail people is is extraordinary. I mean, they are stamping out dissent. Wait, I thought liberals idolized dissent. I, I, thought, I thought you guys were always for... You know, the, the underdog. Yeah, Abby, you know, Abby Hoffman and that whole crowd, the free speech movement before it, the 68 convention, even the weather underground in the more violent aspects, that's what I thought it was about. I thought dissent was the highest form of patriotism. Well, I think what we see now, Seth, is that liberals were very big on dissent when they felt that the country was more or less under a kind of conservative, traditional dispensation. And now that the left, or at least the cultural left, controls so many institutions, it's time to shift from dissent to conformity. I think that conservatives will be unhappy in this world until they come to a truth that is this simple. The left is now in charge. The left used to be the counterculture. We are now the counterculture. They, They... they run human resources in corporate America. They're throughout the government. They run academia, the public schools, the art world, Broadway, all of Hollywood, yep. Silicon Valley, yep. all, all the tech yep. companies. And, and the Democratic Party is not a liberal party. It is a leftist right. party right. at this point. And, and, and let me say this, Seth, you talked about academia. What I hear now in the Democratic Party is what I heard in humanities departments 30 years ago, as I said. And I, and I thought at the time, you know, I, w- I was actually kind of liberal in 1990. I would vote Democrat. And, but I thought all this crazy stuff, you know, queer theory and gender fluidity and critical race theory, this was all going. And I thought to myself, well, these are just these kind of odd people with their, you know, social activism trying to bring in an academic, whatever, no big deal. I didn't know that they would end up steering a lot of Obama's social social policy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 20 mm-hmm. years later, what happens in academia is what will happen in society 20 or 30 years later. Are you amazed at how young it's starting now, Mark? Um, you know, I was amazed. Someone said, well, there's these these transgender books for kids now. I said, like, what, like five or six of them? I said, go online. I went online. It's amazing. 30, 40, 50 books that, you know, are like the very hungry caterpillar or whatever that we had growing up. And, I mean, they're starting really young, Mark. I mean, they're starting younger than, than well, anyone thought. Well, the left understands that 
much of what it preaches is contrary to nature. It's against nature, natural differences between men and women. They argue against these things. And whether they believe, really believe it or not, they know that when you're going against nature, you've got to get people at a young age. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to start working on their minds at an impressionable moment. And if you've got them for a few years, I mean, the, the truth is that people are highly, highly vulnerable to, to brainwashing, uh, to indoctrination, to proselytizing. It happens, and they're stuck with it. And when they sense that what they've learned, what they've absorbed is maybe wrong or confused, that's when the fragility kicks in. And the thing to remember is a fragile person is often a dangerous person. I agree with that, too. Let, 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 me, let me take this quick break, Mark. Let me have you finish that thought and give us the instruction. What's the way out? How, how, how best to get out of here? I, I have a feeling it's what Plato said in the uh, end of, I think it was the Crito. He says, we have the keys. We just need to unlock those doors which we used to know. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Mark Bauerlein. His fantastic and important new book is what we have been discussing. Its title, its title, I'm sorry, I apologize. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Mark Bauerlein is our guest. His brand new book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up. There's a feast of learning in it as well as uh, just a great analysis of, of our culture and society right now. Mark, um, so we told these kids for years at high school and college commencement addresses as well as in the altering of our curricula. You start with Stanford as an example in the late 80s. We tell them to pave their own way, make their own path, uh, speak their own truth. It's not for us to say what's right or wrong. And um, that 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 was the that was the the uh, um, um, omnipresent message. And when kids would come home from fall break or spring break or winter break, quoting, I don't know, professors uh, and scholars the parents had never heard of and tracks uh, that they couldn't even pronounce – we said, well, that's just a college thing. They'll be fine when they get in the real world. Well, they got into the real world. They got in the real world and they went to work for the for the companies that, that they loved um, uh, being consumers of, Twitter, Facebook, all kinds of social media, and, these, and even journalism. And these are the people who fu- did find out that there are, not, there are not many truths. It's not up to everyone to make their own path. You can't believe what you want. In fact, we will censor you. And it'll be more than an unlike. We will censor you from the rest of the world. In other words, this relativism went only so far, didn't it, Mark? Well, what we realize is that this this outlook of, you know, you, you create your own truth, you, you build your own world, it's offered as a, a liberation, right? Okay. This is individual freedom for everyone you know, it doesn't matter who you love, just just do your own thing. What we realize now is when you make so much of the truths of life into a relativistic or subjective thing, 
power is going to enter in another direction and start exerting control. Because you can't have the chaos of everyone running around with their own truth demanding this and that, because truths aren't as uh, passive <laughs> as, as, as that. They make demands on people. And so what do we see now? Everyone feels in our society today less freedom than before. Cancel culture has got everyone worried, including my liberal colleagues yep. on college campuses. Yep. Yep. That they are afraid of their students. I mean, if I had said to my, to my professor, colleagues, liberals, Democrats, 10 years ago, you know, you're going to have to start being careful of pronouns. They would say, oh, what kind of, you know, chicken little uh, right-wing alarmism is this now? If I said, you know, you've been teaching Huckleberry Finn for decades. You're not going to be able to teach that anymore. It's got the N-word in it. It's, oh, come on. Two years ago, two years ago, Dennis Prager was on, on, with Bill, on Bill Maher's show and said the less lies dominate this culture. And Mars said, give me an example. And Prager said, okay, men menstruate. And everyone laughed and thought Dennis was being ridiculous. Two weeks ago, Bill Maher did a segment on the craziness of the left saying that men can give birth. This is what you're talking about. It, it, it keeps going farther and farther. And I'll, I'll tell you, what, what amazes me most of all is not the left pushing this. Because if you've been on a college campus, things like critical race theory – I've been hearing this for 30 yeah, years. Yeah, me too. Right, not nothing, new. Right. N- nothing new. Uh, but, but, you know, the liberals who are sitting there watching all of their liberal principles of free speech, right, individual conscience, this was supposed to be liberalism, and boy, are you guys caving. Mm-hmm. I mean, the spinelessness mm-hmm. of liberals right now in the face of these leftist identity politicians the way they have gone along with these woke campaigns to nail people is is extraordinary. I mean, they are stamping out dissent. Wait, I thought liberals idolized dissent. I, I thought I thought you guys were always for you know the the underdog. Yeah, Abby you know? Abby Hoffman and that whole crowd, the free speech movement before it, the '68 convention, even the Weather Underground in the more violent aspects. That's what I thought it was about. I thought dissent was the highest form of patriotism. Well, I think what we see now, Seth, is that liberals were very big on dissent when they felt that the country was more or less under a kind of conservative traditional dispensation. And now that the left, or at least the cultural left, controls so many institutions, it's time to shift from dissent to conformity. I think that conservatives will be unhappy in this world until they come to a truth that is this simple. The left is now in charge. The left used to be the counterculture. We are now the counterculture. They, they, they run human resources in corporate America. They're throughout the government. They run academia, the public schools, the art world, Broadway, all of Hollywood, yep. Silicon Valley, yep. all, all the tech yep. companies. And, and the Democratic Party is not a liberal party. It is a leftist right. party right. at this point. And, and, and let me say this. Seth, you talked about academia. What I hear now in the Democratic Party is what I heard in humanities departments 30 years ago, as I said. And I, and I thought at the time, you know, I, w- I was actually kind of liberal in 1990. I would vote Democrat. 
And but I fought all this crazy stuff, you know, queer theory and gender fluidity and critical race theory. This was all going. And I thought to myself, well, these are just these kind of odd people with their you know social activism trying to bring in an academic, whatever, no big deal. I didn't know that they would end up steering a lot of Obama's social social policy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 20 mm-hmm. years later. What happens in academia is what will happen in society 20 or 30 years later. Are you amazed at how young it's starting now, Mark? Um, you know, I was amazed. Someone said, well, there's these these transgender books for kids now. I said, like, what, like five or six of them? I said, go online. I went online. It's amazing. 30, 40, 50 books that, you know, are like the very hungry caterpillar or whatever that we had growing up. And, I mean, they're starting really young, Mark. I mean, they're starting younger than, than well, anyone thought. Well, the left understands that much of what it preaches is contrary to nature. It's against nature, natural differences between men and women. They argue against these things. And whether they believe, really believe it or not, they know that when you're going against nature, you've got to get people at a young age. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to start working on their minds at an impressionable moment. And if you've got them for a few years, I mean, the, the truth is that people are highly, highly vulnerable to, to brainwashing, uh, to indoctrination, to proselytizing. It happens, and they're stuck with it. And when they sense that what they've learned, what they've absorbed is maybe wrong or confused, that's when the fragility kicks in. And the thing to remember is, a fragile person is often a dangerous person. I agree with Not that, too. Let, 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 me, let me take this quick break, Mark. Let me have you finish that thought and give us the instruction. What's the way out? How, how, how best to get out of here? I, I have a feeling it's what Plato said in the uh, end of, I think it was the Crito. He says, we have the keys. We just need to unlock those doors which we used to know. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Mark Bauerlein. Sometimes your computer has a critical need sensor and it blanks out the moment you need it. We're talking to Mark Bauerlein about his brand new book, great book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. I read it over the weekend. Mark, what is our way out of this? Well, I'm not sure that I see... Uh, a broad way out of it. What I what I can offer your listeners is um, a more immediate personal course. And I end the book with this tale of Malcolm X, mm-hmm. who goes into prison. He's a thug. He's an awful human being. He exploits people. He's violent. He 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 can't say anything without lumping obscenities into his sentences. And he goes into prison. And he finds that all of his street smarts, the old hustle, really doesn't, doesn't fly there, doesn't amount to much. There's even an older man there, who, black man, who speaks clearly and intelligently. The man has a big vocabulary. shows that Malcolm X has about a 200-word vocabulary, which would work, worked fine on the street. Not, not so strong here, but this man speaks and the other prisoners listen to him. They actually regard him 
as uh, a wise elder. Even the white guards pay him respect and actually sit and listen to the man talk Mm -hmm. and want to learn from Mm -hmm. him. And Malcolm X realizes, you know, I got to change. I got to get past this, this person that I am. And he starts reading, and then he finds he doesn't have the vocabulary for it, so he gets the dictionary. He copies the entire dictionary by hand, Mm -hmm. every word from aardvark onward. Mm -hmm. And he says, the dictionary is like an encyclopedia. Open my mind. He spends years going on to reading history, philosophy. He reads literature, novels, uh, religion, and he becomes Nation of Islam. Not what I think is the truth, that's for sure. But he reads other things as well, and he comes out Malcolm X. Coat and tie. He wears glasses because he ruined his eyes in prison, reading so much. He says, I will never curse in my speech anymore. And he's got a framework. He's become settled. He's not a chaotic person anymore. He's not confused. He's got a vision, a myth, a religion that gives him confidence. It makes him calm. It steadies him. When he goes on the TV shows and debates people, he doesn't get up and say, you're racist. Oh, that's sexist. He doesn't do that. He listens. And he had the confidence of, yeah, and he had the confidence of centuries of knowledge. If I can paraphrase William Wordsworth, Mark, what we have loved, others will love. We just need to teach them how, right? We just there need to That's instruct nice. them how That's the mind nice. of man becomes a thousand times more beautiful than the earth in which it – Mark Bauerlein, that is your mind. That is you to me. You are a great friend and a great teacher and a great writer. The Dumbest Generation Grows Up from Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults by Mark Bauerlein. Mark, until next time, sir, Godspeed and God bless. Thank you, Seth. Anytime. You betcha. Let's make it again soon. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.